and that I think that's the secret sauce for any kind of freelancer uh, is just owning that spot that little box in the minds of as many people as possible Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be a magician? But not just a magician, also a mentalist and a keynote speaker? Well, today's guest is going to tell us what it's like. <laughs> what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? Understandably, a tough question for any 20-something to answer. So join me, your host, Taylor Marks of the Rise Year Podcast, as I talk with some cool people about what they do and occasionally go on long rants of my own about the pains of growing up. Joe M. Turner. He is a magician, mentalist, and keynote speaker and the owner of Turner Magic and Keynotes. Welcome, Joe. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so if you just want to start off, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, for this is year 20 that I've been self-employed, basically a freelancer, um, doing uh, entertainment and some keynote speaking for corporate groups, associations, conventions, conferences, and then just entertaining at parties and special events. Um, Weddings, the occasional cruise ship, so uh, very interesting and sort of odd collection of things that I do that I sort of stuck together with duct tape to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get inspired to do this? Because your background is obviously, like, you went to Mississippi State? Mississippi State, Hale State, Okay. Yes. I um, studied to be a physics teacher, and so I studied physics, graduated with a degree in physics and chemistry education. I was going to be a high school physics teacher. Mm-hmm. But somewhere along the way, I got, I have a very musical background. Okay. And I got sort of into the musical theater mm-hmm. and did two seasons of Summerstock. And what is that? Uh, Summerstock is professional theater in a regional, regional theaters. So okay. they have, uh, for example, I was at Main State Music Theater and they had at the time um, a, a particular kind of contract with equity, which is the performing artists mm-hmm. union to allow them to do professional theater, hiring equity artists under a stock contract, summer, summer theater. So um, just Google summer stock and okay. uh, find yourself uh, looking way back. It's, it's kind of a, a lot of Broadway performers and other types of professional performers would go up into New England during the summer and do shows and, you know, not full uh, budgets as mm-hmm. like on Broadway, but smaller budgets and smaller casts, but fun and bringing theater out to other parts of the country. So okay. um, anyway, that that led me to go back and do most of another degree in communication. Okay. With an emphasis in theater, hmm. and then I panicked <laughs> and got a job with a consulting firm doing management consulting, change management which I had never taken a management class in college other than theater management. But, a little bit different. But, it, you know, they, at the time, this was our early 90s, there was a lot of hiring, and there was a lot of just find high achievers and high performers and, and bring them into your organization 
and train them there. And these things, you know, what, what is uh, sort of the thing to do uh, in those days? A lot of things now are a lot more streamlined and different kinds of selection processes. But in those days, I was able to put out a resume and, and find a job pretty easily. And did you put out one or you put out like a few? And I sent out one. You sent out one and you got the job just right got, that? Uh, <laughs> we can talk about this. There's a whole story about the interview that I had, and it was absurd. I sent out one resume in college. Did you just, like, blow them away with your interview? Well, no. <laughs> I, I think I did pretty well in the local interview on mm-hmm. campus, and they were attracted by my teaching background and thought that as a person who would develop training, it would be a good fit, which is true. It was just education, but not in the classroom you know, K-12, mm-hmm. but in a, an adult learning environment, which is fine with me. I love to teach. Yeah. What I do now is very much related <laughs> to teaching and communicating in front of a class. But so they sent me, said, we'll, we'll give you an interview in Atlanta. So they flew me out to Atlanta, put me up downtown. And um, I got up the next morning to go to this interview. I said, well, i got plenty of time. I'm walking around. Then I realized I'd forgotten to set my watch ahead Oh, really? An hour. So I was a half hour late <laughs> to my interview. And I just walked in and said, look, I realize I've made my mistake. If I should just go back to the airport now, just tell me. I'll just go on home. That's fine. They said, no, you didn't miss anything. The first part is just paperwork. You're just in time for your first official thing. Because it was like a day-long series of interviews. Okay. And I just did the paperwork at lunch. And all was well. And I... Just kind of tussled with the partner. My closing interview, walked in. This is 1993. Okay. And the partner's sitting there. And in those days, you know, the stylish guys were wearing, like, paisley suspenders and <laughs> two-tone shirts, like, white shirt with a blue collar or something, blue shirt with white, two-tone collars mm-hmm. and everything. And he, he was just there with his, with his, you know, teal paisley suspenders. And it was very... Tom Brokaw, 1993, <laughs> and uh, he asked me some difficult questions, and I challenged him a little bit. And then at the very end, he looked at my resume and said, well, you're a little more, I mean, all this theater and performing and music, and you're, he said, you're a little more flamboyant than most of the people we normally bring into this firm. And uh, he had already told us we were on first-name basis, and so I said, well, Tony... With all due respect, you're the one wearing Paisley suspenders. (laughs) Did he laugh? He laughed. That's good. And so uh, I got back to my apartment uh, outside Starkville there and uh, got a phone call. I said, when would you like to start? This is March. And I said, how about August? They said, what day in August? I said, August 30th. And so August 30th it was. And so that's how I got my job in Atlanta. Okay. So you hadn't been to Atlanta before then, so that's what brought only, you to Atlanta? Only for fun. I had not ever lived here, or I, I had had never worked here. I had on-campus jobs and local things. But um, all of my work experience had been in New York and uh, in Maine, and then in, in uh, Tennessee at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. I did an internship there, huh. some fellowship of physics. Yeah. And uh, so I had never worked in Atlanta. My first, uh, I mean, I moved in. It was, it was, that was 1993, so that's now, uh, what is it, Tw- uh, 2003, close, coming up on 30 years. It's been a while. Wow, yeah. that flew by. 
Okay. So anyway, I, that, this is more than you needed to know for that question. No, that's fine. So you, <laughs> so you worked there for how long were you doing that job? I was at this consulting firm for six six years or so. Were you doing the same job the whole time? Well, it, no. In in those days, and maybe this management consulting is a project oriented environment, right? So you, they staff you onto a project at a client site. Mm-hmm. And you're involved in whatever that project is. And it could be short-term or long-term. I was designing training and communicating to the workforces of these projects what was coming and why and how they could be, how could they participate in that? How could they sort of get on board and how could they understand why this was happening and what was going to happen next and what did it mean for them? And here's how your processes will change. And here's some training on the new computer system. And so I worked on the part that was how does what we're doing affect the people in this environment? How can we help the people adapt and be equipped to succeed in whatever the new environment is? Mm-hmm. Other people were doing the processes. Other people were doing sort of the technology and programming. And so consulting, the firm took a multifaceted approach to it. And I happen to be focusing on the workforce. How do we get these people, these human beings, up to speed and ready to execute in this new environment? And I was there for six years, and then I went to Bank of America for two years doing similar internal consulting types of roles. Um, so it's not the same thing. I got promoted and went to different projects. Mm-hmm. and um, So it was never exactly the same thing. I could, I would, I can't do the same thing. You like I, the variations? I, I need that? things to be coming and going. Okay. Uh, theater was very attractive to that. It was very much like the theater. Okay. Uh, because it's, the theater is a product environment too, right? You get cast in a show and you if you're a music director or a performer or whatever you're doing. You do the show, and when the run is over, you're done. And maybe you cross paths with your those people later. Maybe you don't. But was, I think it's very similar to consulting work, and so that's I, I appreciated that on that in that way. Yeah, variety and the change and learning from different people and picking up things that they do differently over there compared to over here. And mm-hmm. It was all pretty cool. So then, what made you switch from? That corporate world doing consulting into what this, doing. which you've been doing for Almost more done. than the consulting. Yeah. Um, I was at Bank of America, and they let me know that they were going to be moving my team. Every they were consolidating different things. Um, I'm and I'm not a banker. I'm I'm not a finance guy. My, I don't even keep my own finances. But I, just, I certainly <laughs> so they never let me anywhere near anybody's money or any of that <laughs> stuff. So don't worry. <clears throat> but uh, after many years of acquisition, you know, when I got hired, it was Nations Bank, which hmm. predate well, a lot of people. But they acquired a lot of different banks. Nation Bank, Nations Bank bought up a lot of banks, and Bank of America in the western part of the U.S. bought banks, and finally they merged. And so enough acquisition, now it's time to streamline so we don't have 50 teams doing the same task, mm-hmm. right? So that was a cost to be saved. And I said, we're, we're not going to have this role in Atlanta anymore. If you want to continue doing this, you're going to need to move to Charlotte. And really, you'll probably have to switch to a different team because we're streamlining the way that we do this. 
And so I had the option of moving to Charlotte, which is a beautiful city. It is. I'm from Charlotte. I love it very much <laughs> and had, had no objection to Charlotte. What I did have an objection to was we loved our house. We loved our neighborhood. We loved our church. We loved everything about where we were, mm. except for my job, which was not doing it for me at all. I mean, mm. it was... It was great and stable and all of that, but I would get in the car in the mornings and put the key in the ignition, put my hands on the wheel and just sort of sit there for a minute and try to figure out if I was actually going to go. Did you call him sick a few times or you always um, went? I was pretty, uh, the only time I called him sick, I'll tell you that, is <laughs> my wife was in school at um, Georgia Tech doing her master's. Mm-hmm. And I played hooky one day to go to Six Flags with her and her friends. That's worth it, though. But I did not call in sick because I was upset or depressed or didn't want to go or anything yeah. like that. I was really sick. I would just, I would manage to get up the gumption, to use a good Southern word, to go. <laughs> but it was not where I needed to be. I was very isolated. I had a little office and Executive assistant, a window in the tower, the Bank of America Tower, on yeah. and, you know, right next to the Fox Theater. Okay. It's killing me. You can't beat that, yeah. Yeah, but I was, I mean, I'm looking at the Fox Theater, and I'm in this building over here, and it was just really torturous to my yeah. soul. <laughs> and I would walk past the Fox every day. I would park in the Georgian Terrace and walk down the nation's uh, Bank of America Tower. And, I, and just, it was not, it was killing me. And so... There was no good reason to move from where we were to where they wanted us to go to chase the only part of our life that wasn't a good thing. Mm-hmm. All the good stuff was everything. So uh, with support of family and all of that, I said, well, we'll find something else. And I had been doing magic on the side for fun for a couple of years at that point. Did you start it when you were younger? You kind of just picked it Yeah, up magic was a hobby when I was a kid. Well, I'm interested in everything. Okay. Um, but magic was one of the other things that I had been interested in. It had come and gone in my life. I didn't really ever perform, except I did, you know, kids' birthday parties when I was 14. Oh, really? I would book out and do the occasional uh, talent show or birthday party or mm-hmm. something like that. But I didn't pursue it professionally. I did not perform magic in college, other than the, the odd something or other in the dorm room just to freak out somebody. But nothing. <laughs> I wasn't performing professionally. Yeah. But I came back to it uh, in my late 20s and early, well, not quite 30, and had picked up going and started doing some corporate events. I always thought of magic as a children's entertainment, really. And to me, magic was only two things. It was either... You know, birthday parties and, you know, a fancy scarf and maybe a clown or something. Or it was Las Vegas. And it was you know, David Copperfield and Siegfried and Roy and all that. And I didn't know there was anything in between those as far as magic. I was pretty uninformed uh, about that. But when I got re-energized in magic and started going to the local clubs and finding out, Oh, you work for corporate groups. Well, wait a second. That's my people. You know, those are, that's my, I know that audience very well. And so I started doing the occasional cocktail party or after dinner show or something like that. I said, oh, this is fun. 
And I realized that there was a whole industry between those two um, you know, monuments, those two markers in the industry. There was a whole lot of other stuff. And I started plugging into that. And so when I left the bank, I really did start interviewing at other corporate jobs for a while. But you'll remember this is uh, 2000, uh, previous recession, mm-hmm. right? There were a lot of things happening in those days. Um, you know, late 99, early 2000, a lot of dot com. Um, problems, you know, businesses going bankrupt and a lot of people being laid off. And bottom line, nobody was really hiring people who did what I did at the money that I had been used to making. Yeah. And I thought, well, if I'm going to take a pay cut anyway, I might as well try this thing mm-hmm. for a while. And everybody was supportive of that. And so I tried and I had never had to sell anything. I just showed up where the business had already been sold by someone else. So that was an education for me to learn to get in there and propose and negotiate and sell. And, so how'd you work on that? Uh, trial and error, basically. <laughs> I wish I could say that I read the right book or I, I God took pity on me in many ways. Yeah. Um, my family supports uh, I would go to networking groups. I finally learned that, oh, there's this whole subculture of business networking mm-hmm. that I had really sort of avoided when I was in corporate because people would say they were going, but I was like, I just saw you people for eight hours. <laughs> I, I love you, but I don't want to go have drinks with you tonight. I want to go audition for a show. You know, I want to mm-hmm. go do the artistic stuff that I've been stifling all day. And the... But I started going to networking groups and put the word out to everyone in my neighborhood, my church, and people that I had known from professionally and started trying to build this business. And, you know, you get some business cards made and you just start schlepping them around and (laughs) trying to get people to pay attention. I was interested in a more literal definition of what a magician is. A magician, according to Merriam-Webster, is one skilled in magic, especially sorcerer. They're also one who performs tricks of illusion and sleight of hand. A mentalist is a mind reader, and a keynote speaker is one who delivers a keynote address. I put some business cards up at some of the magic shops. There were a couple of magic shops, more magic shops in Atlanta in those days. Um, Eddie's Trick Shop. Uh, is still in Marietta, but they had a location in Gwinnett at the time, closer to where I lived in those days. And I put some business cards up there and sort of interacted with the people in that shop on a fairly regular basis. One day my phone rang, and it was this group that is sort of later got folded into Clear Channel Entertainment. Mm -hmm. Um, But they were a live promotions production group. And they said, we're partnering with Coca-Cola and Riff, Reading is Fundamental, mm-hmm. which is a nonprofit literacy nonprofit. They used to do bookmobiles through neighborhoods. You could get free books. Um, and they said, we're promoting literacy in children. This is all tied into the release of the Harry Potter movies. The first ones were coming out. Jeez, yeah. And they said, we need a magician 
who can write and direct a magical show that has an educational background to it. And we need a proposal um, for this person to sort of be the consultant to do. And so it was like everything I'd ever done in my life. Combined. Call <laughs> all came into this sort of strange conjunction. And this alignment happened. And I was like, you need a consultant who's an actor and a magician and, all, and a teacher. And I can do everything here. I can do learning objectives. I can do the staging. I can source all of these props. And so I sent them this proposal, which I won't even tell you what I charged because it was absurdly low. Was it? <laughs> I had no idea what I could have charged. Yeah. But it was. And so I sent this proposal in. And uh, so here's how I'll source the props. And here's how the show will go, and here's what the pieces are, and here's where we're going to get everything, and here's how many how this works, and I've chosen material for this, and here's the learning objectives, and oh by the way, after this project's over, here's how we'll liquidate everything, and get the money back out of the of props so you don't have to store them or anything like that. And I'm very confident that I had the best proposal. No, no other magician would have sent a proposal that looked like that because I just took it straight from. Why I was used to seeing proposals yeah. in the consulting world. And uh, I got the gig. When was this? So this is your first big break, which was... Well, uh, it was 2002, two, three. Okay, so like, like two, three years, kind of. Yeah, whenever the first Harry Potter movie came out. Okay. No idea I've lost track is, of but yeah. I've lost <laughs> There's track of There's been too many. But... That sort of gave me the foothold and proved to everyone that this is a real job. This is a project, freelancing kind of a job, mm -hmm. but it is a real, a real profession. And I don't have to move to Las Vegas and try to get a show in a casino. There are ways to put this together in other ways. And so that's kind of what I did. I've, I I feel like I'm rambling. No, no, no. You're answering the questions. Like, okay, this is awesome. Okay, this is what okay. I want. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> keep doing that. Um, okay. So you've been doing that for 20 years now, pretty much. It, it changed a little bit partway through. Did you focus more on, like, the speaking? Yes. Um, as I was doing magic and really focused on the corporate side of things, one of the things that I liked to do a lot in the earlier days was trade shows. This is like expos, mm -hmm. like CES or you know, those kinds of bigger shows, World Congress Center kinds of exhibits. And companies who exhibit will often hire someone like me to work at their booth and to use magic to attract attention to their booth and communicate their sales and marketing messages, what's cool about their product or their service or whatever they're offering. And I use magic to communicate that. And so um, over the times I would do that, either at trade shows or a product launch or some corporate thing, can you host this or can you can you use magic to sort of introduce this topic? Because you're going to be our kickoff, but if you could sort of set the table for where we're going, that would be great. Of course I can. <laughs> and so I slowly realized that if I can communicate other people's messages and content through magic, why not do my own? So my, my clients sort of pulled me onto the speaking side just by showing me that that it could be done. Mm -hmm. And I've really focused over the last probably decade on trying to get more on the keynote side to come in and 
be an opening or closing keynote for a conference and or host MC for the conference where I use magic throughout and deliver my message, which uses magic as a metaphor for what does it mean for an experience to be amazing? And who better to talk about it than a magician, right? That's why I use lessons from the theater and lessons from magic and psychology and say, well, how does this apply to the way we deliver experiences to our customers or to our donors or our students or our whoever the audience is? Mm -hmm. We all are on stage. Most of us just don't realize it, but we're on stage and our audience is there and they want to be amazed. And, and so if you understand what the components of amazement really are. Or the... Well, I'm not going to give my whole keynote, oh, yeah. but I, but I, but the, the the basic idea is, I say there are five kinds of amazing experiences, and I sort of boil it down to these five categories, okay. and some of them relate to an overt demonstration of your expertise, skillful types of things, or deep knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, some of it has to do with the way your processes are put together, and are there Easter eggs? in the processes so that people are delighted at some point they didn't expect mm -hmm. um, creates an amazing experience. And, um, are there places where the rules get broken? Right? Is, are, are your employees or your your delegates empowered to break the rules a little bit for the sake of the story? Because everybody loves the first class upgrade and everybody loves when the restaurant honors your expired coupon. And they sell us to give it to you. That's a, that's great. That's mm -hmm. an amazing thing because everyone wants to feel like the exception to the rule. Like, God, yeah, I got to break the rule a little bit. That's fun. Hey, and magic ahead. is all yeah. about, you know, rules don't really apply, do they? They're special. That makes it special because it breaks a rule. It breaks an expectation. So anyway, that's kind of how the keynote is structured. And um, I've, I've had good opportunities to share that with Lots of different kinds of industries and clients, and small and large. Um, I shared some with Uber last year uh, in San Francisco. Okay. But I've done it for community colleges because they've got students and parents and people that, you know, the, the idea of creating an amazing experience for the people who are paying attention to you is not dependent on your industry. Mm. It applies to every kind of industry. Anyone who's delivering a service to others, anyone who's daring to go into the marketplace and say, hey, look at me, I've got this for you. They're putting themselves on a stage. And at that moment, all the lessons of stagecraft apply. Hmm. That's yeah. that's my that's my case. That's what I will... I didn't think about it. That's a, that, that, that makes sense. So that's, that's, that's kind of how I build my business now. Okay. Um, what's the best opportunity or the coolest opportunity you've gotten from whether it be speaking or doing some sort of performance? From the magic, yeah. the magic part of my life, <sighs> coolest experience, I've been able to travel Okay. Uh, pretty, pretty well. I see a map in this room. <laughs> yeah. um, I've been to all of those continents yeah. except Antarctica. So if anyone's doing a gig in Antarctica, I will make them a deal <laughs> so I can check off the Get last one. But I've, yeah, I've uh, been fortunate to uh, go on a few cruises over my life and perform and uh, see some of the world and take my family with me one at a time. Oh, okay. Uh, so everybody's take, going. Jeez. I get to take one person at a time when I travel. 
those opportunities. So, but some of the places in the world I've seen were not on cruises. Uh, I was in Bangkok a few years ago because I was um, in magic. We have professional associations just like any other mm-hmm. industry. And although ours also go from like hobbyist all the way to professional. So it's more of a club or than a, than a, it's not a union. Mm-hmm. It's not a, uh, a guild or anything like that. It's more of a club, but membership is anyone who's just interested in magic all the way up to many of the full-time professionals. So how do you attain that level? Do you like pay to get in, or you have to? Well, yeah, it's a dues. Set? You have to have dues and audition and so forth, okay. and you can you can get in at a very rudimentary level, and then over the years you hopefully grow and learn and continue to pursue your interests. And um, there are other things that professionals will do to deepen their skills. There are classes and courses and coaching that you can get. You can hire a director. You can um, get private lessons from people. And so it, it takes a lot more effort than a club would provide, but mm. a, a club can provide a very um, great place to incubate ideas and interact with other people at your level and maybe a little above and maybe a little below and find a mentor. And I learned a lot about the industry I never would have known, right? I, I, I'm a member of uh, both, well, a number of major organizations. In the U.S., the, well, the, the largest one is the International Brotherhood of Magicians. And it's uh, roughly 10,000 people across the world, um, 88 countries, uh, maybe more now. But I was international president in 2015, 2016. I sort of got involved. What does that entail in that position? um, It entails uh, pulling your hair out, (laughs) uh, being cussed at. All the usuals. All the usuals of any kind of volunteer leadership position. You know, if you've ever been... The president of, I see you're, you're an athlete, so maybe you've heard of FCA, yeah. or you've, if you're in college, maybe you were in uh, a, a sorority fraternity or some other student organization, and if you were in leadership, then you struggled with people say they'll do this, but they don't, or people mm-hmm. want to do more than they really should. Uh, they try, you know, and, and balancing all of the competing agendas and interests of people um, and so how are we going to get more members or how, what's all of those kinds of questions that are the same for every kind of association also apply in magic and where are we going to have our convention? Where are we going to, you know, who are we going to book? Uh, all of those things. So I was president for 2015, 16. So I, I went to Bangkok and I went to the UK and I went to, um, Buenos Aires and Santiago and so you guys having meetings there? I was lecturing. I was teaching okay. other magicians in oh, each wow. of those locations yeah. and performing. I performed in the theater in Santiago. I did a show and a lecture in Buenos Aires. Um, I was part of a week-long magic festival in Bangkok. I was at a convention in uh, England. Uh, and so I still do that. Yeah. I, I went to several countries last year. Even when I do these cruises, I will try to schedule a lecture for the local magic club in the places where I'm going to go. So last year, I did a cruise from Australia to South Africa. So I lectured in Sydney and Perth and Cape Town while I was 
God uh-huh. uh, on magic for magicians. So the magician societies in those areas would come and I would teach. Are the cruises just like general cruises, like Royal Caribbean and the stuff? Cru- the cruises, cruises are, yeah, they're just general. I work on one particular line. Um, the program that I'm on is very recreational. I'm basically like, I do a, a small show a number of times in the afternoon. And, okay. And it's, um, it's almost like one of the guest lecturer spots, but it's magic. And I'm not teaching, I'm performing, but it's, it's kind of a nice add-on. It's more of a, short, a close-up show. It's yeah. not a full theater show. It's a small show that I do for... 20 or 30 people at a time in a room and uh, it's very nice hmm. it's it's a good way to see the world I guess. how did you initially get that um, a producer who who I had worked for in uh, Atlantic City and in uh, Del- Delaware called me one day it was his it's his program that he okay. manages yeah. and, he asked me to uh, if I would be interested in doing it, and laid out the circumstances. And I said, "Well, sure, if it if I can fit in my schedule." And uh, I very quickly ended up subbing on some a cruise that another person could not do. Uh, and that's why I called me in was as a sub for that guy. But then I was on the team, and so I got to go at least once a year ever since. How long is the time period? Um, anywhere. The shortest one I ever did was I think eight days. That's and the shortest? The longest one I ever did was three weeks on the ship. Was that from That was Australia? from across the I was the wondering ocean. how long that would take you to yeah. get there. Yeah. I'm leaving in a couple of weeks to go from Guam to Hong Kong, and that will be two weeks on the ship. Jesus. That's awesome. It's pretty cool. Well, yeah. the Philippines are rough right now because of the volcano yeah. and Hong Kong because of politics. And so I'm a little, this one's got me a little antsier than many of the <laughs> other ones that I've been on. Because uh, of the, just sort of the state of the world in a couple of the places I'll be going, mm-hmm. but it'll be fine. be interesting to see how they actually are versus what you see on the well, well, that's the same in Atlanta, yeah. too, right? Any city, if, if 200 people gather on three city blocks and set a garbage can on fire and break a window... That's enough to look like a war zone <laughs> on television. Yeah, and people say, well, "I don't want to go to Atlanta if we, see, you know, or Charlotte or LA or whatever. If that's what you see, and then if you if you pan back a little bit, you see, you know, a circle of people looking at these people like they're idiots. Like, what are you, what are you doing? You're you're on your knees on the sidewalk screaming at the sky, <laughs> and the rest of us are just trying to get to work or whatever. And so you realize that." What you see on that screen isn't always yeah. the full story, and so that's my hope that you know, and and I'm fully in you know support all the the, the Hong Kong demonstrations and all this, but I, at the same time I just I want to keep my distance and be safe, and and uh, I know that the ship will the, the shipping uh, the, the cruise company will be cognizant of that, but I I suspect it's very contained. Or I have a friend who lives there, the magicians group in Hong Kong. I'm trying to schedule a lecture, mm-hmm. but it's a little a little iffy. It's like you realize there's some unrest and it's not always easy to do things. So I was like, yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> so I will I will uh, be happy to make myself secondary to <laughs> the situation there. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll see. Maybe maybe as you said, maybe it won't be quite as bad as it sometimes seems like. Yeah. Hopefully, hope for the best. Yeah. So you call yourself the chief impossibility officer? Yes, I've I've thought about changing it, 
when but did you come up with this? What was when? The story? Yeah. Uh, well, I was at lunch with another friend, speaker, uh, professional speaker, and a former professor of speech communication at a different university. We were having lunch, and he sort of thought that I needed a tag that would help with the marketing and something that spoke to the corporate market mm-hmm. and sparked a question or two. And so I, that's why I came up with it. And I thought to myself, well, executives, chief executive officers handle the executive things and chief financial officers handle the financial things and chief operating officers handle the operating things. So who does the impossible things? That would be me. <laughs> and so that's where it came from. And I oh, I thought I was very clever the day that I thought, oh, I thought I was just... You're like really proud of yourself. Very clever. But over the years, I've thought maybe it should have been something else. What would you have changed it to? Well, I, I wonder if it should be possibility officer instead of impossibility officer. But the ship has sailed. You're kind of... You're already known for it. So this, this is what I've... This is... And possibility officer sounds a little rah-rah, phony, motivational, you know, it just, it, to me, it sounds a little more, a little more cheesy, like a little, a little more cheerleaderish not we quite. can do it kind yeah of like a little that, yeah. a little more empty okay and i think that it probably in some cases might spark more skepticism of me than the impossibility which i think carries the magical question within it is it impossible what does that even mean impossible if it's impossible how can you be the officer i think that maybe the conversation that comes from that, I think, is still positive. I don't think I've never had anyone really react and say, well, that's just so negative. You should be saying, but I tend to overanalyze things sometimes. <laughs> and so I've looked at it and thought, well, is that really the right word? But the more I think about it, the more I think about how in some of the environments where I've spoken, there's a lot of people who are jaded about speakers in general and certainly entertainers who would dare to stand on a stage outside their industry and offer advice to people who've been doing it for 15 or 20 or 30 or 50 years who get what gives you the right mr motivational speaker to come in here and tell us what we you you couldn't you don't know your way around insert coding language of the day here Right? You don't know how I deal with my life and my job and the stresses. So, and I get that. And mm-hmm. I, so I don't want to come, I don't want to, to I don't want to poke that bear. Okay. If they're already potentially skeptical of a rah, 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 this is just going to be uh, platitudes. If they're already skeptical of that, which that's not what I have to offer, mm-hmm. but if they're skeptical of that to start with, I don't want to underline that with the chief Rah, 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 officer. You know, so that's why I think maybe the impossibility is better. Okay. Who would have thought that was a five-minute answer? I don't know. <laughs> that's a good answer. I, I just, I, yeah, okay. I've never heard anybody call themselves that. So well, that is it, the number one benefit of yeah. that title is that nobody else has it. Yeah, so you which, took it and you own it, and that's, just, that's all it. you can ask. That's yeah. it. 
What is your goal when people come to your show? Or they hear you speak. What do you well, want them to get out of it? And you, you, uh, interesting. You changed your question partway through, right? Between coming to my show or seeing me speak, it entirely depends on the context of why they're there. Hmm. If I am there as a keynoter, then I want them to walk away having had fun, but learn some things that they can do differently or think about differently in the way they deliver their service to their audience whether their audience is internal or external or whoever it is, they can say, well, where, is, where, can I, where can I put the fun part of this? Where can I find the most boring part of interacting with you and change it so people look forward to that? Right? So that's what I, that's what I want to motivate in a speaking environment is mm-hmm. how can I take some of that sparkle, some of that magic, and put it into the way I do my job so that people are amazed and delighted to have the opportunity to work with me or the brand that I'm representing. But when I come to my show as an entertainer, I want them to maybe not necessarily completely ignore that. I, I, I love the idea that at the end of my show, there might be a, a Disney moment where you take away something mm-hmm. that you can put in your heart and say, I'm glad that I saw this and I am going to, Think about this or that issue differently, but mainly it's to have fun and to experience something that you didn't think could happen and get to have the fun moment of that can't be, and yet it was. And so I produce a show here in Atlanta called Atlanta Magic Night, mm-hmm. and it's been running for five and a more month, coming up on six years. Wow. Uh, every month, a different uh, set of performers. Sometimes me, sometimes not. February, I'll be gone. Um, the other producer and another performer will be on. I'll be back on in March. April, I don't think either of us are performing. It's just two different people. So I book, I book different mm-hmm. acts in there, and it's always magic and mentalism. And for that show, I just want them to come to the Red Light Cafe, which is not far from here, mm-hmm. and have a great time and enjoy the show and fall in love with magic and say, you know what? Magic isn't what I thought it was. Magic is cooler than I thought it was. Or I, I always thought magic was for kids, but now I realize it really is for everybody. Um, that's not as much of a problem now as it used to be 20 years ago mm-hmm. um, because of the success of magic and television and like got, the Got Talents and the Penn and Tellers. All these kinds of things have led to magic being a lot more mainstream entertainment now than it was um, a few decades ago. Hmm. It, it is, like I said, you either were, you were either doing full-scale illusions in Vegas or you were doing local party. And a lot of people didn't see that there was a place in between, including myself. So I, th- I think that um, that's my goal, okay. uh, is to deliver an impossible experience that leaves people... Um, mystified and entertained and hopefully ready to come back and do it again. Hmm. So different different motivations. Uh, sometimes I don't have a show. Sometimes I'm performing but I don't have a quote show. Hmm. I work as a trade show magician. Well my goal there is to get as many leads for my yeah. client as I can and keep them at my booth longer than they're at any other booth. Because the longer they're at my booth, the less they're at anybody else's, right? <laughs> Deliver these these talking points, 
in such a fluid way that they are both entertained, but they think I work for that company, which often happens. <laughs> How do, do you work for them? So that's a great thing. When I'm doing, I do strolling magic, which is I'm wandering around a, a reception or a party, and instead of doing a show where everyone sits down and watches you, you do 50 small shows, two or three minute shows, uh, here and there, and these people are having drinks or dinners, all of these. They've asked me to entertain you tonight. Let me show you something really quick. Do a card trick or something with a handkerchief or a ring or something, and entertain them for a moment. They go on, and you become. So my goal in that environment is yes to be mystifying and amazing and fun, but also to be a um, an ambassador for whoever the client is that has put me in there to sort of raise the level of hospitality in that room. So I'm entertainment, but I'm also there to help people make connections and spark conversation and introduce people and just sort of make the party work more mm-hmm. fluidly than it might have otherwise. Yeah. So I you know, I have a the toolbox says magic, but there's lots of different ways to put it into uh, practice and, and the, the goal, the specific goal that I have here is on the context. Hmm. Are you known for any specific tricks? Um, in magic, I would say magicians probably identify me with card magic more than anything else. Hmm. In magic, we say, oh, he's card man. He's card man. He's card man. Or he's coin guy. Coin man, coin guy. Um, uh, there are a lot more women uh, in magic in the last 15 years, which is great. Uh, some embrace the term card man, uh, but card magician, it just it gets a little, the language doesn't, it's just more syllables. Yeah. Right? It's just the number of syllables increases. Uh, but sort of the, the old school way of saying it is James Cardman. Card, card, card guys or card folks in the audience, they'll appreciate this more than some others. So I, I usually have a deck of cards on me or within easy reach. Uh, and I, I, I've invented some card magic and I've um, developed interesting presentations for some classic card magic. So I would say most magicians know me for cards. And as far as the general public, you know, the, I mean, my, my so-called fans, I hate to, I'm, <laughs> the people who follow me know yeah. that I do a lot of cards. And then I have an escape that I do, which is kind of a funny thing. That's comedy uh, oh, really? escape okay. thing where I get my hands tied behind my back. And, so that whole, that whole bit is kind of a signature bit for me. So I would say a lot of people who have seen me would probably remember that piece from my show. Okay. So then what's the learning process for new tricks? Do you watch videos on like certain, well, obviously you've done it long enough now where you kind of have a good background knowledge on obviously the trick. I don't really know much about like magic and stuff. Um, But there was probably a time in your life when you saw a magic kit or you saw a magic trick on a box of cereal or you got a kit for a birthday present or Christmas or something. Most boys and girls, I think, go through at least some phase where they see a book in the library and they check it out. Oh my gosh, I had no idea you could do this. Um, the, the process I equate or um, I think it's um, congruent with the same kind of process as learning new music on the piano or any musical instrument. Right? How long does it take to learn this trick? 
Well, how long does it take to learn to play rhapsodically? It depends on what you already knew and what you could do before you started trying to learn it, right? So how long does it take? Well, how many hours per day? How much natural aptitude did you have to start with? So it's a, it's a difficult thing to say, how long does it take to learn this? The process for me has been cumulative over many years. I have a library of a couple thousand books on sleight of hand and illusions, psychology of magic, optical principles, different elements that go into cards, coins, dice, cigarettes, you know, sleight of hand with different kinds of objects and uh, illusion principles and mentalism and all these things. And, uh, so I would say that the, the more varied your toolkit that you've already put together and the number of principles that you already sort of understand, you're likely to be able to piece them together quickly into a new, new combination that achieves something. Uh, I will see something in a book or a magazine or I'll have an idea and I'll say that fits my character. That's something I would be interested in doing. Um, I think I can present that to my audience. I have a useful message that I can tie to that experience. So I need to learn how to do that. Um, and so I'll, I'll invest the time and money to learn to do it. Other times, you know, I've, in, I've improvised things sort of jazz magic mm -hmm. where jazz it, well like jazz it's you know you know where you need to get to and you know where you're starting but you don't necessarily know exactly where you're going to go in between and what notes come and so but if you have a fairly good vocabulary of techniques then you can just sort of work with what happens and um, improvise your way around uh, either somebody says something and you realize, well, if I do this, then I can incorporate what just happened into this trick and it'll be even better. Hmm. And it seems even more impossible because how could you have known they were going to do that? Well, I didn't know they were going to do that, but because they did that, I was able to fold it into the process and make it have a payoff later. Uh, if you make a mistake, you can save yourself by having improvisational skill to, oh, that's not your car. Oh, but you snap your fingers and it turns into their car. Well, that that could be a save. That could mm -hmm. be, you know, it really was a mistake. A lot of times magicians make a mistake specifically so they can save it <laughs> because it's cool to use magic to get out of trouble. That's a good plot um, trope. Uh, magician in trouble mm -hmm. is, you know, we talk about that. Uh, it's it's kind of neat for magic to save the day. It's a good it's a good way to. Did he, did he need to do that or did he not? Well. Sometimes it could be either way. So. Do you have go-to sets, or are you constantly building up your sets, changing them, tweaking them here and there? Which I it, it I think most working professionals have a core set of repertoire mm -hmm. that I would say most of my shows are built from the same fifteen or eighteen basic routines. That I that I know that those are my cold. Just go do it. Mm -hmm. uh, my my stand up shows close up. I probably have another set like that of a dozen, you know, ten or twenty things that I do on a regular basis, and that's my core material. But I like to customize what I do, and so for a particular client, I might say, "This I'm going to have to learn to do this because this is so perfect." 
perfect. <laughs> this is so perfect for their brand or their slogan or their whatever this situation is. Um, the environment is it's like, oh, I'm going to be performing there. Well, I have to do something that uses this thing. That it's like there. a specific item? or An item or an object or a window or a, the way the archway is over the room or whatever. If you know in advance that you've got a certain environmental characteristic, it can be neat to see, well, can I leverage that in a way that makes it seem like it was inevitable that my show would happen there. <laughs> yeah. It had to be there, and right? It had to be this way. And so that, that's, a good, that's a challenge. And then for the last 20 years, I've written an article for one of my industry's largest, uh, it's the oldest continuously published magazine um, in Magic, hmm. uh, independent magazine. And I write video reviews. I review the instructional materials that okay. are released on video. Yeah. That education background coming back into play. <laughs> and so I have a constant flow of what is being released. What are people teaching now? What's popular now? Things go up and down in popularity in magic. There's waves of this particular routine will suddenly have a burst of interest from you know across the world. And why why this one trick with these four coins? Why is it why is it viral? There's no, sometimes, well, somebody did it on TV, maybe, but sometimes there's no reason at all. It just it happened to come back into vogue. Enough people saw it and it caught fire and then it fades. So things come and go. What's popular and now? What's really popular now is card magic uh-huh. that uh, requires more subtlety than sleight of hand so not a lot of process and doing stuff but it works on some very subtle principle of psychology or mathematics or people's attention and the way we remember things and our memories are so malleable (laughs) Uh, what we think we know can can really not be true. Did you know that before you went into magic? Or like once you started diving into it, you learned a lot more? I had that. studied memory. One of the other keynotes I speak on is memory training. Okay. And so if you look at my website, turnermagic.com, you'll see the keynotes I do. One of them is memory mojo. And so there are memory skills that you can use to develop your ability to remember names and numbers and lists and so forth. And that those kinds of techniques help you fight against the, the how how much of a sieve our minds really can be because we're so bombarded with information we get distracted easily I'm the worst I'm the worst you know I want to check my I've, I've wanted to check my phone 15 times <laughs> since we sat down for this interview and so uh, we can we can be convinced after the fact that the process we saw is, process we remember is different than the process we actually saw hmm. and I will say a lot more about it it's not fair to performers including myself but the basic idea is it's it's very difficult to actually create a recording in your mind of exactly what happened for five minutes hmm. and remember exactly what order things happened in and who said this first and who did that second and exact processes there it's there's just too much information and so a skillful performer creates a narrative 
that is smooth enough and, and pleasing enough that all the things you remember fit on it in the right place. So you think, well, that must be how it was. But we might have adjusted some things. Hmm. That's a, yeah, in yeah. Your memory. Yeah. So I, I will leave it at that. Okay. Fair. I'm certainly not the first person to talk about that yeah. in, in public. And so I'm not giving away anything, but you've probably experienced it yourself when you've seen a television program once and then maybe some years later you watch it again. You're like, wait, I don't, I thought this happened. Oh, yeah, that is how it <laughs> happened. Because you, you kind of convinced yourself some other plot point happened first, and you couldn't figure out why did it... Oh, yeah, that is how that happened. It's it's some, it's the same kind of idea. Hmm. Or you, like, talk to somebody else, and they have a completely different view on it, and you're like, no, I literally just watched it. I just watched yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're imagining that sequence. Yeah. Yeah, but... And why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. The, you know, part of magic is learning to control that. And... And massage that into what you want it to be. So knowing that information, does that make you more in control? Like in your day-to-day life? Like when I'm watching other shows? or the, um, I Like are you more conscious of that in all aspects of your life? I, I think probably to some degree I can tell when I'm doing, uh, having the story manipulated a little bit. Mm-hmm. But... I would say the same is true for anyone in any industry who does sales. There are certain techniques of sales that sort of apply to some of these same psychological principles. Mm. Um, and I resent it when someone tries to pull that on me <laughs> because I'm like, I know the, I know what you're doing. You're doing the so-and-so technique. And I, I just, oh. And I don't blame you for doing it because it's what we're supposed to do. We're trained. They were trained to sell me that way. Yeah. I get it. Most people don't know they're being played like that. Well, and and the word played is negative and it's loaded. And I don't mean it. It's like we're all trained that there are certainly more effective ways to present your case to others. And if this isn't working, you can answer the objection by trying this technique. (laughs) And so I get it. I get it. We're all... you know, it's, being mad at that is like being mad at someone for adding, right? We're taught to add. Yeah. It's a thing that works. It, mm-hmm. it helps us with life. And sales techniques are similar, but the problem is uh, many sales techniques are built on understanding the psychology of the person. But once they understand that you understand that it's a psychological <laughs> principle in play, it changes the dynamic completely. <laughs> and that's where I get just like squeezing the arms of the chair, like, oh, please don't. Don't try to make me give you a yes. Don't ask me a question that's like designed to make me say yes. Right? Because you want to get people like, ask yeah. them a question. Don't you like to save money? Well, of course I do, Mr. Oh, don't do that to me. Don't, <laughs> don't ask me a question that I can't say no to because I, I know you're trying to get me to say yes. And then I resist. <laughs> but I don't mean that comes into my job now. Yeah. I mean, I have to sell what I do and. You want people to say yes, right? When you're yeah. on that side of the phone. It feels good. When, when you're on that side of the phone, it's like, oh, I should try this. Yeah. And then when I'm on the other side of the phone, it's like, oh, don't, you're not going to try that, are you? <laughs> so it's, it's funny. This is the human condition. Yeah. Okay. So this question is probably a little bit harder in your situation just because you're all over the place. But what would an average day look like for you? 
Before I met with Joe, I decided to take a jab at what I thought a day in the life of a magician, mentalist, and keynote speaker would be like. And I have to say, I think I was pretty on par, or at least in the general ballpark, of what it was. I would imagine looks something like... Mm, I don't know, it's pretty hard. I feel like it's kind of like sports in a sense where you're perfecting your craft. So you work from home, um, you work on whatever tricks are in your current set or set that you're going to be implementing in the future. You reach out to companies that you've either worked for before or ones that you would potentially be interested in either performing shows or coming to speak for whatever they need you to speak on. The average day is abject fear and panic <laughs> and where is the next gig? That's not true. There's an element of any freelancer has to always be wondering what what am I going to do next? This what I'm doing has an end date. Mm. And the service I provide isn't a constant need, right? If I sold natural gas or if I sold a physical consumable product of some kind or if I offered a service of other, some other kind of service law, if I were a lawyer, well, the same person isn't going to need my service tomorrow, probably. But the same client may need my services for 10 different legal challenges in the course of their life, if I've developed a good relationship with them. Insurance. If you have an insurance agent, an insurance representative, well, you're going to need them when you buy a car, and then if you have kids, and when your kids buy cars, and uh, you, know, you buy a car, you have to insure all of that. And then, so th some people offer services that have many, many uses for the same person frequently. And then magic, I don't really. It's, unless it happens to be a trade show or some sort of marketing situation, um, it's unusual that I would get brought back multiple years in a row to do a show for the same group. Now, I might even get brought back a client this year that I worked four or five or six years ago. Mm. So there's just a long time between clients repeating uh, in, in some parts of magic. So that's that's a little bit of a challenge for me. Um, a typical day, probably a networking event, I'll go to a business networking group or try to go online or do something to promote myself. Um, uh, that could be a networking group. It could be writing a blog post. It could be sending out an email. I could be focusing on my show, not myself, but the Atlanta Magic Night mm -hmm. show. So there's probably some part of networking and promotion piece of my day. Uh, there might be, um, I need supplies, I've got to make an order, I need some this or that, or special something, whatever it might be, <laughs> magic, I need magical things yes. that I have to go find or, or, or acquire or source. Um, I, I write, I write a column for a magazine, I write independent articles for another magazine in magic. I'm editing a friend's book right now, so I might have to spend some time in English grammarian, 
grammar Nazi mode, mm-hmm. which I am terrible. I just, everybody hates me. Oh, Because, yeah. oh, I'm like... You're the worst? Oh, I will challenge you on your bad apostrophe. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will shame you. I can appreciate that, oh, though. I certainly think. There's nothing worse than reading someone's, <sighs> whatever they wrote, whether it be a text or something online, you're like, why would, what... Depending on the context, I'm more forgiving. A private text, and you're trying to swipe or whatever. Yeah, you're going to make a mistake. But if you made an image, like a JPEG, and you're sharing it on your Insta with a grammar mistake or punctuation error, I just just feel for you. (laughs) I feel for you. I am totally judging you. I just admit it up front. Do you let them know later? Some some people I do. Some people I don't. Some people I just swallow hard and go on. But I just really feel like, you know, one day... We're going to have to go with that apostrophe shortage because we've overused <laughs> them um, so terribly. Just, it's it's shameful. Okay. <laughs> so, um, let's see. I sh- I'll probably have to pack and get a show ready. Um, I may have to take clothes to the cleaners and uh, some, so there's some calendar work. There's some packing. Uh, if I'm doing a show, regardless of whether I'm strolling or whatever, I like to be on site an hour beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um I might be scheduling an appointment like I had with you. I have, I have another appointment this afternoon, a phone call client, which, fingers crossed, Good luck. could be a really important yeah. moment in my business if this goes through. So I'm optimistic. All right. Uh, I will uh, probably, if I can, take a nap in the afternoon mm-hmm. so that I'm fresh for the, for the evening. If I can squeeze in couple hours yeah hour and a half even 45 minutes um if i can take a nap it's i think it's helpful for me to be uh a little more sparkly and fun i'm a firm believer in naps i I think they're lifesavers i i even the power nap has been useful for me in the past but sometimes i have to be somewhere really early or really late the next day and so if i can work in a nap it's it's useful Hmm. i don't always get to do it i didn't get to do it yesterday and then last night I was out at the networking event and I faded. Mm-hmm. I could feel myself not in the zone. Yeah. Because my energy was flagging. Huh. So I try to pay attention to that. Um, I drink some coffee um, often. Typical day. I mean, that sounds pretty busy. Like, Well, I mean, you know, and then some days and weeks are, you know, high activity. And then some days and weeks are low. I mean, it's like, why can't, why, why isn't anybody responding? Or they, does, does the world know I'm still here? <laughs> um, and just, just trying. Yeah. To, so that's a good time to put out some more stuff on your social and go get your butt to a networking group. And, you know, it's not that the people in the networking group are ever necessarily going to hire you themselves. Most mm-hmm. of them have small businesses and they can't afford me. They don't, they don't need what I do. Yeah. But the question is, can I stay top of mind to enough people that they will recommend me? Mm-hmm. And that, I think that's the secret sauce for any kind of freelancer uh, is just owning that spot, that little box in the minds of as many people as possible. Like I, For a while, I got very frustrated. I still do, personally, when people send me, oh, did you see this guy on America's Got Talent? And I know all these people. So that it just I'm like yes, I saw him. <laughs> For crying out loud, I've, he's been on there four times. You know, I've seen it. I've seen, I've seen it. I've seen it. And people say, "Oh, did you see this?" And they're like recycling videos from ten years ago, and I'm like, 
oh my gosh, I saw it the first five times you said yes. But yes, it's cool. And so you smile and you nod and you're like, oh, that's awesome, loved it. But I just, I tell myself, look, even though it's all these other famous people in magic that they're sending me their videos, the reason they're sending it to me is because when they see magic, they think of me, right? Mm -hmm. So all of those things aside, I own the box in their mind where magic lives. Mm -hmm. And so when they see it, experience it, follow it, share it, whatever, they want to tell me about it because I own the neighborhood. If I can remind myself of that, it makes life a lot better. So I try not to be frustrated. And it's not that I'm not jealous of other people's success. I just like, well, should I be doing more of what they're doing? Should I do this? You start questioning yourself and your objectives and, Am I not doing enough of this? Should I should I stop doing this and do more of that? And if I chase everybody else's vision, then I never get mine. Mm -hmm. And I I never under even understand who I am if I'm trying to be everybody else. Which that is that's the same. That's everybody's challenge, right? Yeah. That is the that biggest is, one out of all of them. That is regardless of industry. That's yeah. the big things. You know, this above all, time, and self be true. <laughs> and what is it? If you do this, then can't be false to any man. I can't quote it exactly, but it's, you know, Polonius was right. And I'm trying to be true to myself and be good to people around me and be helpful and all of that. But just don't distract me with the things that other people are doing because I will chase shiny objects. Yeah. Like a rabid raccoon. I just, oh my gosh, I have to, oh, and I, I start questioning and doubting and comparing and that's, nothing, no good comes from that. Yeah. So, I just try to tell myself the reason they're telling me that is because I own the magic box. And everything that goes in that box, they report to me. That's good. Yeah. So as many people as think that about whatever job you do, then that's great. It helps you because whenever somebody says, oh, I need a chiropractor or I need a podcaster or I need whatever it may be. I need audio editing. I put the, the, then you own that space in your head. And if you help enough people, you know, if you own that space in enough places, then that need will come to you. Their need will come to you and you can supply that service. And so that's the key. I think that's the that's key. That's the key. Okay. I, I, I think that's the, the big key for anyone who is self-employed in a solopreneur kind of role. Right. I'm not self-employed. I don't own a clothing store. I don't own a grocery store. I don't own a, uh, a law firm. I'm self-employed. I do what I do. I am my product. I have to be there to deliver it. Mm -hmm. I work as an agent. And I, I'm, I do some projects where I'm looking at other people, and that's great. I'm trying to do more of it because um, then I can make money when I'm not performing. Yeah. But the, for the bulk of what I do, I have to deliver it. I'm the guy. I'm the guy with these hands. That's it. I can't send someone else. And so trying to connect with as many people as I can. I try to help them. Not that I want them to owe me, but I just want them to remember me. I don't, I don't, want, the, I don't want them to feel obligated, but I want them to have had, I want them to think of me as, you know, that they know me, they like me, they trust me. That's the big, that's the secret of networking, according to certain networking organizations, is people do business with people they know, like, and trust. Mm -hmm. And so, how is my interaction with them helping 
in those three ways. Am I helping them achieve something they want? Um, there's a man you may have heard of. Uh, he was born in Mississippi, where I'm from. And he went on to become probably the preeminent motivational speaker of the 70s and 80s, 60s maybe. His name was Zig Ziglar. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What, a, what, a, what a name. It just sounds like he should... You know, he's like Tony Robbins before Tony Robbins. Yeah. Tony Robbins. Zig Ziglar. And he said that you were successful when you help enough other people get what they want. You know, if you help enough other people get what they want, that's how you get what you want. Yeah. I, I try to remind myself of that. It can be a challenge. You know, human beings lose focus and yeah. get distracted, but that's what I'm trying to do. Okay. That's what I'm trying to do. And pray a lot. Yeah. God, please save me. <laughs> save, save, me. save me again. I blew it. I blew it again. I said the wrong thing. I did the wrong thing. I stepped in it. But, you know, why Why does it take me so long to learn some lessons? <laughs> I don't know. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. Yeah. I don't know. I hope I'm dropping a little wisdom in here yeah. along the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are. So I have three final questions. Okay. Um, the first one is, would childhood you be happy with what you're doing now? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah? Was this your... Childhood me was all about some magic tricks, man. Okay. Uh, I, I was doing magic when I was five. I did my brother's three-year-old birthday party. <laughs> With tricks on when my, you were five, you when I was off. five, and uh, oh, and let me tell you, my mom, she uh, made me a cake because you can't be a magician when you're five unless you have a cake. Yep, that seals the deal. Required, <laughs> and and she drew me a little funny mustache with her uh, eyebrow pencil. So I was I was the deal. Okay, when I was five. I had the whole look and very classic, uh, very classic, suave, debonair five year old magician. <laughs> And uh, doing just the tricks out of the book that I had, little Mickey Mouse magic book. Okay. And it was, that's what it was called, Mickey's Magic, Mickey Mouse's Magic Book, something like that. Hmm. And uh, so childhood me would probably be thrilled that adult me is doing this. Perfect. Childhood me doesn't understand credit ratings. <laughs> so that's that's okay. probably a tough one there. <laughs> that's, so that's okay. <laughs> no, that's good. Okay. Um, second question is, if you had 24 hours to live, Unlimited money, money's not an issue, and you could travel or do anything at snap of your fingers. What would you do? 24 hours, do anything, snap of the fingers. You could go with anyone, yeah. too, whichever. I would, in all likelihood, there is an island mm-hmm. in the South Pacific. That is not as well known as Tahiti and Bora Bora and other things of that nature. Um, less developed, but very beautiful. It's called Aitutaki. Mm-hmm. And it is where my wife would go right, she'd go right now if she could. Mm-hmm. We were there briefly, and she's a beach person. I am not. <laughs> Couldn't give a rip about a beach. I don't care. I'm good for an hour. And then, so if I had 24 hours, I would probably transport us both there. Let her go to the beach. I would snap my fingers probably long enough to go see a play. Very specific play, just saying. Let me just find something. Okay. And then come back to the beach and finish it out with her. That's right. probably... I, I, I would just... I think I would try to spend the time 
you know, maybe she would maybe she would split the day with me. Maybe we could do me in the early part of the day and after the matinee we'll spend afternoon speeding on the beach yeah. and holler. Okay. And I think that would be fun. Yeah. That sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then last question, what's next? Do you have any big Project, well, you said you're going in February. I have, um, well, I have a trip coming up uh, uh, from Guam to Hong Kong, so we'll see how that goes. And that, that finishes in mid-February. I have a proposal out that I should find out before the end of next week if it's a go. I think it's not, it's very likely to be a go that we'll have a big, uh, a big project in February. Huge. Okay. And then I have another proposal out that would be a summer-long project involving myself and a team of other magicians. So this coming summer? This coming summer. Okay. And hopefully that will be settled one way or the other in the next month or so. And if that's the case, then I'll be busy until August. That's the dream right there. That Yeah, that sounds awesome. That would be... That, and that would... If those two, if both of those things happen, it would be that this year would be my best year. Yeah, really? Business. Yeah. Okay. If I happen to sell both of these things, then it would arguably be my most successful year in business. Alrighty. Last few years have been improving. Okay. I will say, um, the, it was a struggle um, coming back from that recession, and so. But last few years, things are trying to improve, and I'm. Trying to be optimistic that uh, positive things are happening, and yeah, if if I could get these things sold, but if they if I if I don't sell them, then I'll sell other things. You're a pretty good salesman now, so I've learned <laughs> to, you know, close my share. Yeah. Of deals. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for coming out. I really appreciate you taking the opportunity yeah. and chance of. Thanks for the for the invitation and yeah. just uh, share my social out on like the links. And everything. Do it. You can tell them what it oh, is. Oh, um, well, I'm on everything. Okay. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. I have a Snapchat and a TikTok that I don't know what to do with. <laughs> so I'm 50 years old. I'm barely keeping up. Uh, you know, I told my people on my show I'm on everything. I'm on everything all the way back to two cans with a string between them. That's what I'm on. <laughs> okay. Um, but Facebook.com/slash/TurnerMagic. Okay. Twitter.com/slash/TurnerMagic. Um, Instagram.com slash TurnerMagic, TurnerMagic.com. That's enough. Okay. You can find me in plenty of places. All right. Well, thank you. Yay!